Good morning and welcome. The last few months have been tough for us as a church. We've lost no less than four of our loved ones and the difficulties have been compounded by COVID and also by the fact that the government has been sucking every last drop of blood out of the country. Because of these circumstances, many of us are doubting uh, whether God is still in charge and in control. And then our confidence has also been shaken as well. So what I'd like to do today is to have a look at the story of the kingdom of God, because I believe that there will be encouragement and relief in this story. So let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for the story of your kingdom. We thank you that you are establishing your kingdom and that you are still on your throne. We pray that you would reassure us of these truths as we consider the story today. Please bless our times and may it be set apart as holy for you to do your work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before God created the universe, there was heaven. Heaven was God's space, if you like. And so I'm going to start off by talking about heaven. Heaven, heaven is a kingdom because it's ruled by God. And every created being in heaven obeys God. And they do it willingly and joyfully. Therefore, everything in heaven is controlled by God. He's in control. In other words, God is the king of heaven. Then God created the universe where we live to be a part of heaven. So our space, the earth, was a part of God's space, heaven, and God was king over all of it. Unfortunately, as we've heard in the last few weeks, ad nauseum, this perfect situation didn't last very long because mankind rebelled against the king. And at that disastrous moment, the earth became rebel territory and it was excluded from the kingdom of God. And this meant two things. One, God no longer lived with man on earth in the same way that he did before. Remember how God used to spend time with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the evening. That could no longer happen. And humans no longer obeyed God willingly and joyfully. This didn't mean that God was no longer king. It didn't mean that he was no longer sovereign. It simply meant that he had to control and rule people that no longer wanted to obey him. And thank God, he's actually really good at doing that. Take the cross, for example. Satan thought that he was dealing a death blow to Jesus. But in actual fact, he was doing the one thing that God had planned since before the creation of the world. God delights to use Satan to overcome the work and the purposes of Satan. He loves getting Satan to shoot himself in the foot. But God has always wanted willing, joyful subjects. He wants his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that the way that Jesus taught us to pray? He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what the story of the Bible is about. It's about God reestablishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're going to trace that story today, the story of the kingdom of God, past, present, future. We're not going to get into a lot of detail. It'll be a bit of a helicopter ride over the story. Let's begin in the past. The kingdom 
or any kingdom usually has subjects, a law, a throne, and a territory. So let's look at each of those. How did God establish those on earth now that the earth had been removed from his kingdom? Let's begin with the subjects of the kingdom. God chose this man called Abram, and he changed his name to Abraham, which means literally in the Hebrew, father of a multitude. I wonder why. It's prophetic, isn't it? He is going to become the father of a multitude. He's going to become the father of a nation. God is going to be building up subjects for himself through Abraham. And so over a period of 450 years, Abraham's descendants multiplied. And this is where we begin to wonder, do the kingdoms of earth have authority over what God is doing? Because the Egyptians took the people of Israel into slavery. They ended up enslaved them. And so God changed that situation by miraculously liberating Israel from the Egyptians, taking them out into the desert where he began to reveal to them how he wanted to live. He did this through a man called Moses. Moses was the mediator between God and man. And so God gave Moses the law, and, and Moses took it to the people of Israel. He gathered them around Mount Sinai on the slopes of the mountain, and, and he said to them, are you prepared to enter into a covenant with God? God is looking for subjects who are willing and will um, serve him willingly and joyfully. Will you obey the law? So that was the law of God. Now, God had subjects. He had a kingdom. He also had a throne for the kingdom. Now, remember that perhaps the greatest tragedy of Adam and Eve's rebellion was that God stopped living amongst human beings. But out in the desert, God began to reverse this. He gave Moses this design of a very special tent called a tabernacle. Exactly what it was going to look like, how it should be arranged, how it should be decorated. And Moses made sure that the people of Israel constructed this tabernacle exactly as God wanted it to be. And then, miracle of miracles, wonder of wonders, God came down in a cloud and he took up residence with human beings for the first time in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. From that time onward, whenever the people of Israel were traveling through the desert, they would come to a new campsite and they would put up the tabernacle first. And then everybody else's tent was arranged in a very specific way around the tabernacle so that God could live right there in amongst his people. However, he didn't only live amongst his people, he was also enthroned among his people. The seat of God's throne was between two angels, the wings, in fact, of two angels that were formed on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark was placed in the Holy of Holies, a special place inside the tabernacle. And that's where God had his throne. 1 Samuel 4 verse 4 says, So the people went to Shiloh, I'll explain later. They brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. But Moses was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. He was the only one who could talk to God. And God gave him instructions and rules and laws 
which he then passed on to the people of Israel. So now the kingdom had subjects, it had a law, it had a throne. What about a territory? God chose this man. His name was Joshua to lead the people of Israel into the land that God had promised to Abraham 450 years before. And God continued to dwell in the tabernacle, in the land, in the promised land at a place called Shiloh that was mentioned earlier. He was seated there on the earthly counterpart of his heavenly throne. But once again, are human beings, are God's own subjects going to mess up his plans? Because the people went to God's prophet at the time, a man called Samuel, and they said to Samuel, we want a king. The implication was that they weren't happy to have God as their king. They wanted a human king so that they could be like the nations around them, so that their king could take them out into battle, so that he could be the focus of the power of the nation. So God allowed Samuel to anoint a man called Saul king. But Saul messed things up. He was a weak man. He was a disobedient man. He didn't obey God willingly and joyfully. So he was taken out and a man called David was established in his place. And this king, King David, appears so many times in the Bible. He was a key person in the story of the kingdom of God. Why? Here are a few reasons. Number one, and you'll see the significance of this as we go on. David established his throne in a place called Jerusalem, and he brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem so that God's throne would be there as well. Number two, in obedience to God, David saved up building materials and decorations and fittings for the construction of a temple and then he commissioned his son Solomon to build the temple which Solomon did do once David had passed away and that temple was to be sort of like a permanent version of the tabernacle a place where God would live and reign amongst his people and where he could be worshipped third point God made a promise to David this is starting to get really significant that one of his descendants would reign on the throne of Israel forever. You'll see on the screen now, 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 14. Just cast your eye down to verse 14. I will confirm him, this descendant of David. This is God making a promise to David. I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. And then over the years, long after David had died, God's prophets began to foretell the coming of a mighty king who would rule over Israel and indeed the entire world forever. Here's one such prophecy from Isaiah 9. You'll see it on the screen. I'm sure you'll recognize it. We often read it at Christmas time. It starts, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And it goes on to talk about for unto us, a child is born, in verse 6, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and evermore. And Isaiah wasn't the only one who made these prophecies. At another time, there was a prophet called Daniel. And Daniel saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now that's a very significant title, son of man. Jesus starts to use that title when he appears on earth. And he came to the ancient of days, to God himself, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His domain is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. But, once again, are God's purposes going to be thwarted by sinful human beings? The prophet saw one king after another fail to obey God as his representative and so did the people of Israel. So time after time, the prophets tried to call Israel back to the covenant, back to obedience, back to that law that God had given them. And they gave them all sorts of grave warnings for non-compliance. And the worst of these was that the temple, where God ruled in Jerusalem, would be ruined and the people of the kingdom exiled. God was going to lose his throne. He was going to lose his people. He was going to lose his territory. And that's exactly what happened. The kingdom of Babylon, an earthly kingdom. Think of our government as, uh, think of Babylon as being a type of our government. This earthly Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and took most of the people away into captivity. I mean, that didn't look very good for Israel's hope that God would rule and bless the entire world from his throne in Jerusalem. But then the prophet Isaiah brought a beautiful prophetic poem to the people. It's clear that God had given a vision and it's, it's, it's recorded in Isaiah 52 verse 7. Jerusalem had been destroyed. A pall of black smoke hung over the temple. People were bleeding their clothes were in tatters. The temple was in ruins. They had no hope because God's rule seemed to have been smashed by a kingdom of the earth, Babylon. But suddenly, the watchmen, watchmen see, standing up on the wall of the city, they see a messenger running on the slopes of the mountains that surround Jerusalem. And he's coming closer and he seems to be shouting, but the watchman can't hear what he's saying. So they're calling out to everybody, be quiet, be quiet. Everybody settles down. What is he saying? He's calling out, your God reigns. God still reigns in spite of what's happening. And then Isaiah begins to prophesy about the coming of a suffering servant who will take the punishment of his people so that their peace with God may be restored. That's really curious. God reigns. And um, he's going to, normally a king would establish um, his will and his authority using an army. Why, why would there be suffering? Let's move forward to the present expression of God's kingdom on earth. 
fast forward to the New Testament, to the accounts of the life and the teachings of Jesus. Matthew wrote in chapter 2, verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Jerusalem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. That's, this is fascinating. Right from Jesus' birth, there were indications that he was the king talked about in the Old Testament prophecies. God was still in control. He still had a plan. And in this case, isn't it amazing that God gave a heads up to everybody through three magi who didn't even come from Israel? Let's continue reading. When Herod the king heard this, one of the kings of Israel, a corrupt, nasty man, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them whether Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And then they quote directly from the Old Testament prophecies. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Israel. No, not only did the gospel writers provide evidence that Jesus was the coming king, but Jesus saw himself and claimed to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And there's many places where we could find this. One of the ways that he did it was when a Pilate said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus didn't deny it. He said, you said so. And then in, gospel, in John's gospel, he said, um, my kingdom, when, when, when um, John records that when Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He said, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus didn't deny and he claimed to be this king that was coming. And there's also multiple instances in the Gospels where Jesus claims to be the son of man. Remember, that's that phrase, that title that was used by Daniel. And certainly, Jesus' opponents and his enemies, they knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to be the coming king. And they thought it was blasphemy because they believed that he was just an ordinary human being. And that's why they made plans to kill him. And that's exactly what they did. Now, it's at the crucifixion of Christ that we come to something incredibly profound with regard to the story of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. The crucifixion is portrayed, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, as a coronation, as a crowning. The Roman soldiers force a crown of thorns onto Jesus' head. They put a scarlet robe on him. They give him a scepter. All of these things are the trappings of, of a king. They're the trappings of royalty. And ironically, the soldiers thought that they were mocking Jesus. But Jesus truly was throned as king when they raised him up on the cross. Because it was through the cross that Jesus inaugurated his kingdom on earth. Once again, in the form that we know it today. Folks, this is immensely significant. Remember earlier I pointed out that usually a king has an army to overcome his enemies 
and to enforce his will. But the kingdom of God is often described as an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom in which the greatest victories are won through sacrifice and service and suffering and love. But that doesn't mean, don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that the kingdom is without power. Why would I say that? Well, let's move on now to have a look at the now of the kingdom. What I'm saying here is that let's look at how the kingdom manifests itself now that it has been inaugurated by Christ. Because there is a now and a not yet aspect of the kingdom of God as it is at the moment. It's manifested, if you like, in a provisional manner. And this means three things. It means that the kingdom of heaven doesn't have physical territory marked out by borders. Instead, it is found in the heart of every person who acknowledges Jesus Christ as king, which is very powerful. Number two, the king, Jesus himself, is not enthroned in one place, but he's enthroned in the heart of every person who believes. That's how close he is to us now. That's how close he's dwelling with us. He is in us if we acknowledge him as king and serve him and obey him willingly and joyfully. Number three, the power of the kingdom is granted to Christians to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to perform miracles, but the power is granted in a provisional manner. It's in a now and not yet manner. How do we know this? Well, one of the ways we know that it, it's, it's been designed like this is from the parables that Jesus told to describe us the kingdom of God. And these parables are very much in a now and not yet form. So, for example, Jesus portrays himself as a sower. Now, he's the king whose seed is affected by birds and thorns and human response. I mean, how can that be? Some people are responding, but others are not. There's a now and not yet aspect. It's the same for us when we preach the gospel. The kingdom is described as being like a mustard seed. In other words, it's very small. And it's in the process of growing. It hasn't yet arrived at that tremendous size where it's the tree that's bigger than all the other trees and the, the birds of the field and the animals are sheltering underneath it. It's starting off small and it's in the process of getting there. The kingdom, the kingdom is like leaven in dough. You can't see it. It's hidden. But it's powerful because it's spreading throughout the entire lump of dough. The kingdom is like wheat seeds that are planted in a field, but mixed in with them are the seeds of weeds. Jesus knew, he knew, that this provisional nature of the kingdom would be a problem for us. That it would perhaps offend us, that it would perhaps discourage us, that it would stir up doubts in our heart. And you know, that's exactly what happened to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was rotting in prison. And Jesus had come as the king, the king of God's kingdom. Why hadn't Jesus set him free? The Messiah was going to set the captives free. Isn't that what, the, what all the prophecies said in Isaiah? Matthew 11 verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come? Because it just didn't seem like he was the one. 
or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, Jesus was saying, my kingdom has come, but it's come in a provisional way. Yes, blind men see. And yes, the lame walk. And yes, the deaf hear, and so on and so forth. But the not, net, not yet nature of the kingdom means that I'm not going to spring you from prison. And please don't be offended by that. Please don't be discouraged by that. And Jesus is saying the same thing to us today because we know that Jesus can perform miracles. We know that he can heal people. We know that he can protect people. And yet, it seems like God wasn't protecting Jason. And we have doubts and we're, we're concerned and, and we lose courage. Folks, we mustn't do that. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is here. It's here in a provisional manner. Please be, don't be offended when things don't turn out the way you would like them to. And of course, Jesus feels it in his heart when things don't turn out the way we or he would like them so, in the present, the kingdom is now and not yet. But what is it going to look like in the future? Let's look now at the future aspect of the kingdom of God. There was this pagan king called Nebuchadnezzar, and God gave him a dream, which troubled him a lot. So he called together all the people in his kingdom who would normally be able to interpret dreams. But he wanted to make sure that the interpretation of the dream was accurate, because any charlatan can suck an interpretation out of his thumb. So he said to all his magicians, you've got to tell me what the dream is. I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. Then once you tell me what the dream is, you must interpret it for me. And you just wonder who on earth could do that. And of course, we've already mentioned him today. It was Daniel. He revealed that Nebuchadnezzar had seen a statue with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of clay mixed with iron. And then God gave Daniel the interpretation of the dream. Each component of the statue stood for a particular kingdom, and the dream predicted the rise and fall of these kingdoms. And we can, we can rely on this prophecy, A, because it was given to a pagan king, B, Daniel gave, uh, God gave Daniel the details of the dream and the interpretation of it. And we also now know from history that the dream accurately predicted the fall of the Babylonian Empire. That was the head of gold, followed by the rise and fall of the Medo-Persian Empire, chest and arms of silver, the Greek Empire, the belly and thigh of bronze, and finally the Roman Empire. Now, if God can accurately predict this through his prophet Daniel, doesn't it show that he controls the kingdoms of man. Because after all, this is about the rise and fall of kingdoms. God is still sovereign over these kingdoms, even when people are in, walking in disobedience to him. And so in the words of Daniel, I love these words, uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 12, uh, sorry, 20 to 21, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his, he changes times and seasons. 
he deposes kings and raises up others. Think in the context of our own government here. God is in charge. He is in control. This government cannot thwart his plans and his purposes for the nation or for you as a person. What happened next in the dream? Daniel 2, 34 to 35. While Nebuchadnezzar was watching, this is key, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. In other words, it was divine. This rock was divine. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, smashed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. That's the end of the kingdoms of this earth. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. What's this all about? Let's have a look at Daniel's interpretation of the dream further down, verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This rock this rock was divine, as I said, because it was, it was cut out, but not by human hands. This rock was the rock of ages. It was the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. And the dream records that the rock smashed into the legs of iron because that's when Jesus was born, during the time of the Roman Empire. And Jesus, the rock, established the kingdom of God in the heart of every believer by dying on the cross. And God's kingdom, although it now is not in that state, it will gradually become a huge mountain that fills the whole earth. When Jesus returns, it will fill the whole earth and it will crush the kingdoms of the earth into dust. Now just get blown away on the wind. And then, according to the words of Revelation 11:15. The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. He'll reign from his throne in Jerusalem. This is the not yet of the kingdom of God. But you can be sure that it is coming. You can be sure that the best is yet to be. Yes, we chafe at the moment under the now of the kingdom, the incompleteness of the kingdom. But we know that in spite of it being incomplete, that God is still in charge, he's still in control, the kingdom is heading exactly where he wants it to. Nothing on earth, no force in heaven or on earth can thwart his plans and his purposes. This kingdom will become a mountain that fills the whole earth. That's where it's going to be. Jesus will be on the throne. There will be no more sickness, no more crying, no more war. Every tear will be wiped away because the best truly is yet to be. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for those who've been feeling discouraged. I pray for those who've been doubting. We know that you don't have a problem with people doubting. You meet people where they are. 
If they're honest about their doubts, you will meet them. You will meet them. And so if whoever might have concerns, whoever might have anxieties about whether God can protect them or not, just reassure them to know, Father God, that you are the king, you are sovereign. Even when things on earth look like they're completely out of control, when the people of Israel saw the temple in ruins, you were already sending a messenger to say, Ah, God reigns. Father, we thank you for that. We love you. And we ask for your blessing in the week ahead. Please just remind us of these things. May they be an encouragement to us now, but also as we move forward in our lives. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Goodbye, goodbye for now. And thank you so much for joining us. God bless.